So again, John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, page 72 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Uh, This beginning the signs of Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there he stayed a few days. This is the word of the Lord. I do have some good news to announce this morning before we get started uh, going through the sermon. Uh, Matthew Smith was born at 1015 this morning. So, um, yep. Praise, uh, praise the Lord. Uh, every, every child is a gift and um, should be treated as a gift. And that's why we are adamantly opposed to the murder of children through what is called abortion. Because every single one of them is a gift from God's hand and ought to be taken care of as such. Um, so praise God for Matthew. Uh, as far as I know, it was a healthy delivery and uh, he's doing well. Um, Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we do thank you so much uh, for the joy and the grace of bringing Matthew safely and healthily into this world. Um, Lord, amid all the trials that the Smith family has already had to go through in, in, uh, in his young life, in relation to them. Lord, you have preserved them and you have kept Matthew healthy in the womb up until now or until 1015. And uh, we thank you for bringing him out, Lord. We thank you for adding another child to the Smith family. And uh, we pray that it would just, that the four they have now would uh, be doubled (laughs) in time to come. And uh, I know that's what they want. And Father, I pray that you would make their quiver full and give them grace to sharpen those little arrows and shoot them out into the world for the glory of your name. Father, even while we rejoice uh, at the birth of Matthew, we also mourn uh, the loss of another little child for the Matei family, um, or at least a child. Um, 
And Father, you know your purposes in that. You know the reasons behind that. And um, we won't know until we're with you in glory all the answers to our questions. Lord, we do trust in your wisdom. And in the midst of the pain, you've given us grace to trust in your goodness, Lord. And knowing that even in the most evil and dark situations, you are working for the glory of your name. And the glory of Christ Jesus will shine out from the midst of the darkness, Lord. Your kingdom will be fully and utterly established in this world and all will see and know that you are Yahweh and that you are one. Lord, we long for that day. And uh, we thank you that right now we live in the time of new grace that you've brought to us, Lord. Not the grace that characterized the law and the grace that characterized the old covenant, but you've brought to us new grace of a new covenant And by your spirit, Lord, you make us new wineskins so that we can hold that new wine of grace that you've brought to us, Lord Jesus. And I praise you for the word that we're going to be looking at today. This passage is so rich with meaning. Lord, I just ask that you would allow it to come out clearly. May it be helpful to your people. May it be honoring to your name. May the burden of this passage be proclaimed rightly. And uh, Father, would you prepare our hearts as we come to the table of your Son this morning together as a church body. May we do so with joy, with reverence, but yes, with reverence, but more with, with joy, rejoicing in the great work that you have done for us, Lord Jesus, and giving your body and shedding your blood to redeem us for the glory of God and to bring us safely into your eternal kingdom, Father. We We want to rejoice in what you've accomplished in your son, Father. So please help us do that as a church body today. Lead and guide us through your word. It'd be beneficial to us all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, today we're coming, well, at least we begin chapter 2. Had a a long stint in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. Now we're coming into chapter 2, and we're looking at a very familiar account of Jesus turning water into wine. Now, many see in this account merely a, a retelling of a miracle that Jesus did in order to help a newlywed Jewish couple out of a tight spot. He performed a miracle, he provided for a need, and that is kind of all that's going on here. Well, we're told in John chapter 2, verse 11, that what's happening here in John 2 is at this wedding in Cana, it's more than a simple miracle that Jesus performed. It's actually described as a sign. In fact, it's the first of many signs. We don't enjoy and experience fellowship with God naturally when we're born into this world is because we are born into this world as sinners, as those with whom God cannot have fellowship in and of, in and of ourselves. And so John is picking up on this creation theme. He's picking up on this fall theme. And then from chapter, uh, uh, from verse 1 of chapter, goodness, 
Here we go. Then from verse 6 of chapter 1 down through verse 18 of chapter 1, John is focusing on that promise of a redeemer. That Genesis 3.15 promise of a seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent and undo the darkness that has bound us and kept us disfellowshipped from our God. That is what the whole theme of John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is all about. It's creation, it's fall, and it's redemption. And then right after that comes verse 19, where John begins this consecutive laying out of a one-week time period in, the, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe is representing this new creation that is being begun and brought into existence through our Lord Jesus. Really, from John 1.19 through 2.11, what we find is really a, a microcosm of a picture of the gospel itself. You have the presentation of Jesus as the Savior and the Messiah. You have the calling of disciples to follow him and to believe in him. And then you have Jesus ushering his disciples to what? To a wedding feast. Now, isn't that a picture of what Jesus does in the life of every single disciple? The truth of Jesus is presented to every single person who becomes a believer. The call to follow him and to become his disciple is demanded and responded to by every true believer. And then Jesus spends the rest of that believer's life ushering that believer in to the promise of the wedding feast of the Lamb that's to come. Revelation 19 verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you have this pictured in John chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, this microcosm of what God in, in Christ is doing through the gospel in the lives of sinners. He's beginning a new creation. He's beginning a new work, and he's bringing his disciples to the consummation of that new work, which is that final day of glory when our Lord Jesus brings about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, does that make sense? Did I just lose anybody there? Okay. I hope not. All right, so that's kind of setting some of those details out, this first creation, new creation week. Now, this sign, it says, in John, took place at a wedding. And when verse 1 refers to a wedding, we don't just want to think about a wedding ceremony itself. We really want to have in mind a party. This was a grand celebration. You know, one of the first things that threw me off balance, one of the first things that shocked me when I moved up here from Tennessee in 2008 was the way that you guys celebrate weddings. In Tennessee, you have the wedding ceremony, and then the bride and groom go off, and they're on their own, period. It's just the way things are happen. the way things happen. I was shocked at the first wedding I came to up here and discovered that the ceremony was going to happen in the early afternoon, but the after party was going to last until at least midnight. It was like a huge celebration. And that seemed to be the consistent way that people up here celebrate weddings. Maybe I'm wrong on that perception. Maybe that's not true. But regardless of how full and rich celebrations of weddings are here in Minnesota, the weddings as they were celebrated by Jewish culture would have blown our wedding celebrations out of the water. For the Jews, to celebrate a wedding, that could last up to a week time period. What they would do, they would march after the actual ceremony took place, the community would march the bride and groom with torches and lights at night to their home 
and, and bring them home. And then for the next up to seven days, people in the community would continue to visit them in their home, bringing gifts, but also celebrating and having a good time together, rejoicing in this newlywed union, this new union that God had produced in these two people. And especially in a tiny town like Cana, the entire community would have been involved in what was going on. Now we read in John 2 verse 1 that the mother of Jesus just happened to be at this wedding. Now obviously this is Mary, and just an interesting side note, John in his gospel never refers to Mary by name. And being that this was the last gospel written, there's probably an important reason for that. Um, this may be, he may never refer to her by name simply because even by the time that John wrote this gospel, Mary was beginning to be exalted above what was proper for a sinner to be. And we see the outgrowth of that and how it came to fruition in the full expression anyway in the Roman Catholic Church. But John never uses Mary's name. He only refers to her as the mother of Jesus or his mother. Now, regardless of, of why John never used her name specifically, the reality is Mary was at this wedding. And it seems that she had a role in making preparations for the wedding. We see that in the fact that she had great concern when the wine ran out, and she somehow had the authority to demand the servants to do, do certain things. She could command them. And this, may, this means that she probably had a... Uh, responsibility for making preparations for the wedding, and it also may indicate that this wedding was for a family member. Which, by the way, would be why Jesus and his disciples would be extended an invitation to come to that wedding at such late notice. Um, so it's probably for a wedding, or probably for a family member, and uh, anyway, we find that Jesus' mother was there. Now John 2, verse 3, tells us the problem that created the opportunity for this first sign to be done. As the wedding celebration went on, it says in this verse that the wine ran out. The wine ran out. Now let's go ahead and get something out of the way. Yes, indeed, there was wine at this wedding. And yes, it was alcoholic wine. And yes, the wine that Jesus was about to make was also alcoholic wine. And he made a lot of it, like up to 150 gallons of wine, okay? As I'm going to say in a minute, like that's, that's probably more than a gallon for every person that would have been at this celebration. A gallon of wine is a lot. There's no way to get around the fact that this is real, genuine, fermented grape juice. Some want to say that this was just grape juice as we know it and as we're going to use here at the table. I know some of you have complained about that, that we don't have wine as an option here at the table. It's not the time to discuss that. Maybe some other day we'll talk about it. But most people or many people want to say that the wine that's being dealt with here is merely grape juice, right? Like Welch's grape juice. Well, there are a couple problems with that. One is that the climate of this area did not allow grape juice to sit without fermenting within two days. So if you had any kind of grape juice that was sitting there, it would ferment within a couple days of being pressed out of the, the skin of the grape. 
And then secondly, more important probably for understanding what's going on here, is that the word used in this text is a technical word that means fermented grape juice. No way to get around it. That's actually why the head waiter can say in chapter 2, verse 10, in reference to wine, he can talk about people getting drunk on the good wine that's normally served first before they're introduced to the poorer wine after they've been inebriated. That is what drunk freely means. It means to become inebriated. So this was alcoholic wine. And according to Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus himself was probably drinking this wine. Okay? Now, if that disrupts your confidence in the truthfulness of Jesus or uh, the holiness of Christianity, then you need to reset your priorities. And you need to discern where your convictions are actually coming from. Are they being driven by cultural expectations or abuses? Or are they, be driven, are they being driven by the word of God? I grew up in a context where... It was the cultural expectation that was driving more of what we would see in this passage than actually what we find in the scriptures. So forgive me for going down that road, but I felt it was important. Now, wine was actually very, a very important part of Jewish weddings. And that's because of what wine signified. Wine represented to the Jew the blessing of God. So, for example, in Psalm 104, verse 15, we find that God's giving of wine to make men's hearts glad is seen as an expression of his greatness and his goodness towards man. Now you notice there, there's an effect that's being produced by that wine. And even that is held up as an expression of God's kindness towards men. Now from other passages in scripture, obviously we're not talking about drunkenness here. That's a sin. Being out of control and under the influence of something else that's, that's not the Holy Spirit, that is a sin. But to drink wine is, is seen as a blessing of God. In fact, the lack of wine was seen by the Jew to be a sign of God's judgment. So, for example, in Joel chapter 1, verse 10, where it's describing the judgment of God that was coming upon the disobedient people of, uh, disobedient covenant people of God, it says that the grain was ruined and the new wine dries up. So, it's the removal of these things that was an expression of God's holy displeasure with his people. And so having and enjoying wine at a wedding really became something that was symbolic of a desire to have God's rich blessing attend the lives of this newlywed couple until the end of their days. There's a lot of meaning and importance behind having wine at a wedding. But we see in John chapter 2 verse 3 that something tragic happens at this wedding in Cana. As I read earlier, the wine, which represents God's blessing, ran out. Now, in light of the significance of wine, you can understand what a problem that would be. Running out of wine would be like a picture of running out of the blessings of God. It would be like, um, like christening a ship and failing to break the champagne bottle, right? There's nothing of substance to it, but those who are more superstitious among us think that that's, an, that's a bad omen. That's a bad sign. At any rate, this is not the way you want to start your marriage, by running out of that which pictures the very blessing of God upon you. 
And not only that, it would, it would also have been utterly embarrassing and even shameful for the bridegroom to run out of wine at his own wedding celebration. The bridegroom in these days was the one responsible for making all the preparations for the wedding. And so for the entire year prior to this point, this bridegroom in John chapter 2, according to Jewish custom, had been making preparations in order to begin this family, his family, with this woman. He had spent an entire year building a house in order to bring this woman back to his house. You can hear language of John 14 there, right? Jesus saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come and I will take you unto myself. I will receive you unto myself. The same marriage concepts being exemplified there. But anyway, this, this man would be spending the whole prior year building a house for his wife, saving up money in order to prepare, uh, to provide for her, and doing everything necessary in order to prove that he was capable of taking care of this woman. In fact, that's a good model for any man seeking a wife to follow. I, I took this out of the sermon because I don't have time for it, but here it comes. If you are a man seeking a wife and you do not have your own home or financial resources or spiritual maturity to take care of yourself, you have no business seeking a wife because you are not ready to take care of her. One of the most tragic things we do in our day is this whole process of, of dating among middle schoolers, high schoolers, and I'm not speaking as some old fuddy-duddy that grew up in fundamentalist time period. I'm speaking of someone who actually had to suffer through the pain and the detriment of having multiple relationships with women in a dating process through middle school and high school. It's like, we, it's like we're training our children to, to... It's like we're training them not to be committed to someone. And we're training them to open themselves up and give some of their heart away to someone else only to have it torn to shreds, something that they can never recover from, and really stripping away from that person what rightly and only belongs to the spouse that God has ordained for that person. We're destroying our culture through things like dating. Hey, that's a rabbit trail. But my, my point is, we can learn from this Jewish cultural example. Men taking responsibility, proving that they actually can take care of a wife before they have the responsibility of the wife placed upon them. Regardless, this bridegroom in John chapter 2 had spent the last year of his life making provision for this moment. And yet, look what happens here. He's, uh, he has failed to provide enough wine even to make it through the wedding celebration. That doesn't bode well for the future. And no wonder Mary seems so distraught over this, especially if this was a member of her own family. In a shame culture of, in the shame culture of this time, this would have been ruinously embarrassing, not only for the bridegroom, but also for all the other ones that were involved in putting this wedding ceremony on. So Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. And I can guess, in a hushed tone, she kind of whispers in his ear, they have no wine. Now, obviously, what's happening here is Mary is asking Jesus for help. Maybe because Jesus and his disciples were part of the problem. Maybe that's why Mary brought this up with Jesus. Right? 
They were last-minute guests. From everything we can tell in the Gospel of John, they probably didn't have time to RSVP before coming to this wedding. Maybe it was their fault that they had run out of wine. They would have had to have been drinking a lot of wine, I suspect, if that is the case. But I don't think that's probably what would happen. Maybe Mary brings this up with Jesus, asking for help, because, as the evidence seems to indicate, Joseph, by this time, had already passed away. And Jesus was primarily the one that Mary had to go to in order to be taken care of and in order to seek advice and understanding on what to do. Well, we're not exactly sure why Mary asks Jesus, or at least brings up with Jesus that they had run out of wine, but I think there's a pretty strong clue in Jesus' response in John chapter 2, verse 4. In John 2, 4, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. It's as if Jesus is saying, Woman, why is that our problem that they ran out of wine? That's not my fault. Now, honestly, it seems like a pretty sharp response from Jesus, especially in light of the fact that he's talking to his mother. Some commentators want to say that this use of woman here is actually showing deep respect for Mary. This was a way that you would address like a stranger in order to be respectful towards that stranger, very much like the way that people in the South where customs and manners haven't entirely disappeared, they'll address women as ma'am, Yes, ma'am, that's a sign of respect. Maybe something more appropriate or uh, equal to English would be something like madam. Saying, madam, what, what does this have to do with us? Now, I don't think Jesus was being disrespectful. However, dressing his own mother as woman would not necessarily be endearing. It wouldn't be overly, uh, it wouldn't show very much closeness in his description or his uh, wording towards her. That may be respectful when speaking to a stranger, but Jesus isn't talking to a stranger here. He's talking to his mom. Now, clearly, what Jesus is doing is creating a measure of distance between himself and his mother. And what was probably happening was Mary, as Jesus' mother, was asking him to do something because he was her son. But here, Jesus begins his ministry as Messiah, or as he begins his ministry as Messiah, he makes clear that this is not how things are going to happen moving forward. From now on, even Mary herself would have to approach Jesus, her son, as Messiah like everyone else. I think we see this more clearly, really the nature of what Mary was asking Jesus to do in the next phrase that Jesus says. He says, What does this have to do with you or me? What does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now that phrase is used at other times throughout the Gospel of John. For example, there's a parallel use of it in John chapter 7 verse 6 when Jesus is speaking to his brothers. In John 7 verse 4, it says that they did not believe in Jesus and they were mocking him saying, if you want to be known publicly, then go show yourself to the world. If you're really trying to get a following, you're really trying to make yourself known to the nation, then go show yourself publicly and do these works that you're doing out in front of everybody. Let them all see your glory. Now, they didn't say that because they believed in him. Like I said, they said it because they doubted him and they were mocking him. 
But in verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus said in response, My time is not yet here. That is, it's not yet time for my glory to be made known so publicly. That's the emphasis that Jesus is getting at whenever he says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to manifest myself in that way. Now, based on Jesus' response to his mother, it seems that this is probably what Mary was seeking from her son as well. Not just asking him to fix the problem of having no wine, but but actually knowing that her son is the promised Messiah, you remember that was announced by the angel Gabriel. She knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and at this point she'd been waiting 30 years for the Messiah to make himself known to the nation of Israel. Now can you imagine being the mom, knowing what's happening with your son, knowing God's intentions for your son, and yet waiting and waiting and waiting on God to bring those things to pass? Maybe Mary sees in this moment of need at this wedding an opportunity for Jesus finally to unveil who he really is to all the people in this room. Well, Jesus' response to her is saying, it's not yet time for that unveiling. It's not yet time for me to do that. And in reality, what we find here is Jesus gently rebuking his mother. And he says, what, are you, what you're asking of me has nothing to do with my calling. That is, this is not what my heavenly father has called me to do. Therefore, you have no right to ask me to do it. But look at how Mary responds to this. In John 2, verse 5, it says that she went straight to the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, notice what we don't see here. We don't see Mary interacting at all with what Jesus just said. Jesus said, nope, not time. Not going to do that. And Mary goes to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, is that not trying to instigate a situation where Jesus is forced to do something? Well, when my mom wanted me to do something, she knew how to set the circumstances to make me do it. Here, Mary is interacting with these servants and telling them, whatever he tells you to do, you make sure that you do it. And then Mary just kind of disappears from the scene in this account. What's going on there? Well, really, what I see in Mary there is a deep expression of true faith that whatever the answer to the problem was, her son was the one who would work it out. Mary has just been rebuked by her son. She's just been corrected by her son. And yet we find in verse 5 that she remains undeterred. Jesus just ostensibly shut her down. But she responds simply by thrusting the matter back into his corner and going up to the servants and saying, hey, he's going to tell you what to do. Go see him. He's going to sort it all out. Well, that's not the picture of arrogant presumption, but that's a picture of genuine faith on the part of Mary. I think D.A. Carson captured this well in what he wrote in his commentary on this verse. He wrote, this sort of pattern occurs elsewhere in John, where Jesus initially refuses a request for assistance and then proceeds to help in his own way, often in response to a further demonstration of faith. And then he cites John 4 and John 11 as examples 
the royal official and Martha and Mary. He says, in short, in chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and she is reproached. But in chapter 2, verse 5, she responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. In other words, even Mary could not presume to approach her son or to expect anything from him simply because she was his mother. It was only on the basis of faith that the blessing of Jesus would come to meet her in her need. Now, what a principle there for us. It's not upon the basis of any perceived relationship that you have with Jesus outside of the context of faith that will ever meet his blessing. Your parents can be the most faithful, devout Christians in the world, and that does not make the difference for your relationship with Jesus. Your husband, your wife may have the deepest, most intimate prayer life with the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus is not going to operate with you based upon her faithfulness or his faithfulness. There's only one way that the blessings of Jesus Christ comes upon our lives, even if we are his own kin, even if we are his own mother, it matters not. What matters and what meets the blessing of Jesus is faith and faith alone. Here we see in Mary her coming to Jesus in true and genuine faith and Jesus meeting her faith with the blessing she was asking for. All right, so here we have the scene. All of that was just painting the scene. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding. The wine runs out. Mary asks Jesus for help, and she responds even in faith after his rebuke. Now, what is Jesus going to do at that point? That brings us to look at the sign itself. In John chapter 2, verse 6, it tells us a really important detail about how Jesus chooses to handle this problem at this wedding in Cana. John 2, verse 6 tells us that there were six stone water jars set in the house, each one holding two or three measures, placed there for the Jewish custom of purification. Now, when it says two or three measures, holding two or three measures each, a measure would be somewhere around eight to nine gallons. So each of these jars would hold anywhere between 16 and 27 gallons each. And between the six of them, you're looking at somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons of liquid that could be held in these jars. Now, chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that Jesus ordered the servants to fill the water pots up to the brim. Now, needless to say, as I mentioned earlier, that's a lot of wine. <laughs> that's an abundance of wine, and it's picturing something that I hope we'll see in a moment. Now, the most important piece of that information in John chapter 2, verse 6, though, is that statement that these stone jars were set there for the purpose of the Jewish custom of purification. Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, tells us what this is probably talking about. How the Pharisees, after they went to the market or anywhere else, they wouldn't come into their home and eat without washing their hands or without washing themselves or washing cups and plates and utensils. That's probably what these jars were set in this home for in regard to the wedding. As the wedding guests would come, they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet, they would be ceremonially clean in order to participate in the celebration of the wedding, and then they would go inside the house. 
Now, John stresses the fact that they had been set there for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. And that's a big deal. We're going to see that again in John chapter 3 come up. But what's significant is that in performing this sign, Jesus chooses to use these jars that symbolized Jewish purification in order to make the provision of wine that was lacking. And right there, we have the biggest clue concerning the significance of Jesus' sign that he does here in Cana. Now, the significance of the sign, third and final point. We might be tempted just to say simply, wow, Jesus turned water into wine. That's amazing. And then move on. But clearly, John is presenting this account in such a way that you and I are pressed to ask the question, why? Why include this detail about these jars being for Jewish customs of purification? Why tell us the number of those jars? Why tell us how much those jars hold? Why not just say simply, they ran out of wine at the wedding and Jesus turned a bunch of water into wine and he saved the day? And then move on. See, John is painting these details. He's presenting these details for us so that we would understand that there is some theological point that is being driven at through this act that Jesus is doing. A better question might be to ask, why did Jesus choose to use these jars in order to provide the wine that was lacking? I mean, just think about it. If he wanted to, he could have just, with his own mind and will, filled up the empty wine containers from the wine that had already been drunk. He could have just filled them up. Nobody would have known what happened. All of a sudden, we've got all these wine bottles that are full of wine. He could have done that. Or like Elisha in the widow's oil, right, in 2 Kings 4, Jesus could have just decided to keep the wine pouring out of the bottles that were left until the very last cup had been filled for the wedding guests. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to use these jars of Jewish purification customs. And I believe that there is significance behind his choice to do that. As verse 11 says, this act was a sign. It was signifying something. So what was it signifying? There are three things I want to point out here as we end this morning. What was this act of changing water into wine signifying? Well, let me offer three things. Number one, plainly on the surface of it, this act of changing water into wine signified Jesus' power and his divine nature. At the bottom level, at least, this sign shows us the glory of the fact that Jesus, as a man, exercises power that only belongs to God. You try to will water to change into wine and see what happens. You try to command it to change into wine. Nothing's going to happen. But Jesus here manifests the fact that he has the power and the authority to command the water that he made to become something utterly different than what it was. No mere man has power by his own will to do something like that. And so it's demonstrating something of the glory of his divine nature. However, that can equally apply to all the miracles that Jesus did 
and doesn't necessarily signify something unique about what Jesus is communicating through this miracle. What distinguishes this as a sign in John chapter 2 is that it was used by Christ as an illustration of the fact that the time had come when the wine of the grace of the old covenant had run out. And Jesus was now ushering in the time of the new covenant kingdom wine. That's the second significant element behind this issue here of Jesus turning water into wine. What is it signifying? It's signifying that the time of the old covenant grace of God, the grace of God given through the old covenant, it was time for that grace to expire and give way to a new and fuller grace in the new covenant. These jars, just think think through this with me. These jars symbolize the tone and the tenor of Old Covenant worship. Even if they didn't encapsulate everything about Old Covenant worship, they still, they still held in themselves the tone and the tenor of Old Covenant worship. And in this sign, the present grace of God had provided Worship and forms of worship for his covenant people under the old covenant. There were terms of worship under the old covenant that gave grace to the old covenant people of God. Agreed? You understand what any of those are? Sacrifices, guilt offering, sin offering, peace offering, thank offering, fill in the blank. The law of God revealed to them righteousness punishment for disobedience, all of those things revealed under the Mosaic covenant, under the old covenant, were expressions of God's grace to the people of Israel. But as Hebrews 9.14 tells us, that grace was limited in its effect merely to regulations of the body. Meaning, it was only able to sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. It couldn't actually do anything for the worshiper in his or her guilt-stained conscience. Now just think about what's pictured so perfectly by these waters, these water jars in John 2. Just imagine the scene in your mind. More than likely, these jars which in this scene, embody the whole system of Jewish Old Covenant worship, more than likely, these jars already had water in them. And they were already being used by the guests who had come to the wedding celebration, which is why they were set there. They were set there for the purpose of Jewish custom of purification. And they had been being used, which is why they needed to be filled up. Now just imagine, if you will, the dirt and the filth that would have been washed off into that water as travelers from dusty towns walking on dusty roads entered into the house, washing their hands and their feet with that water. No hand sanitizer, no soap. And here you have these jars that people were using to make themselves ceremonially clean for the sake of the wedding. 
Well, even if you take those jars and you finish filling them up with the cleanest, purest, fresh water that you can find, what's going to happen to that water once you mix it in with the dirty water? Is it all going to become clean? It may become slightly diluted, but it won't make the dirty water clean. That water is still dirty. And in essence, all you get is more dirty water. Now that in and of itself is symbolic of all that could be accomplished according to the worship of God under the old covenant. No matter how much clean water the Jews poured into their religious worship, none of that clean water would ever make them clean enough to approach God and holiness and righteousness without fear. There was a limitation to the worship of the Jew under the old covenant. All of those regulations, they didn't actually deal with the conscience. They only dealt with the body. They only made them physically and ceremonially clean. They did not make them spiritually clean. So all the commands of the Old Testament, you could lay them down with as much force as possible. You could try to obey them with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it would never do anything to make you clean in the eyes of God and your soul. Pour as much clean water in there as you want. Because what's already in the jar is dirty, whatever clean water you pour into that jar is going to become dirty as well. See, these jars really represent the worshiper in this scene. We are the jars that are unclean. You get that. Jewish worship is represented by these jars. And no matter how many acts of righteousness they tried to do or how many sacrifices they made, no matter how much they sought after atonement according to the rituals and rites of the Old Covenant, they would never be able to do enough to make their jars of water clean. But here Jesus signifies the purpose of His coming through this sign. When he takes that which in this scene is representative of old covenant worship and transforms it into something utterly new. He not only changes the dirty water itself into clean drinking water, that would be enough, but he actually takes that water and changes it into wine, something that was sweet and refreshing and representative of the blessings of God that would come through the Messiah. You can see that in Amos chapter 9. You can see that in Joel chapter 2, all throughout Isaiah. What Jesus is doing here is he's picturing what he came to do with the old covenant. He did not come merely to clean the old covenant up. He didn't come merely to renew the old covenant with the people of Israel or to extend the old covenant to the Gentiles. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to bring in a new covenant. He came to bring in new covenant worship. He came to bring in new covenant worship produced and sanctified by the new covenant wine of the Holy Spirit. See, what it typified in the water changing to wine, that's representative of the difference between the old and the new covenant. 
Because of its rituals and duties, the focus of worship under the Old Covenant was constantly on trying to make sure that you were clean enough to approach God and worship Him. That's what the aim and the design of all of those regulations of purification were for under the Old Covenant. And the focus of that Old Covenant was making sure that you and yourself were clean enough to approach God according to those demands. But the focus of the new covenant is on the reality of Christ's transforming work and bringing the worshiper into a new state of existence before God where you're not just made clean water in your jar. You're actually made something new in your jar. You are made a new creature that is full of new worship and new life from the, glory, or from the Spirit of God. See, that's the focus, and it, it, it's not in the new covenant. It would no longer be worshiping God unto becoming clean. It's worshiping God out of already having been made clean. See, the picture here is of Jesus coming to do for his people what we cannot do for ourselves, what the old covenant never could do for us. What Jesus is doing in this act of providing wine in the midst of their lack is symbolizing that the Jews had reached the point in their covenant with God where the old covenant wine had run out. Because the old covenant was nothing more than a type and a shadow of the great glory that God was going to be bringing about in the new covenant. John 1.16, remember we looked at this when we were walking through John chapter 1. The grace of the new covenant has come and has overtaken and replaced the grace that had been set up by God under the old covenant. We've received grace upon grace, or more literally, we've received grace in place of grace. And then the very next verse talks about the law being given through Moses, grace and truth being realized through Jesus Christ. In fact, this theme of new grace being ushered in through the ministry of Jesus, doing away with all the old and bringing in the new, that continues on through the rest of this gospel. So next in chapter 2, we're going to read about Jesus bringing in the new temple. In chapter 3, we're going to read about Jesus introducing the new birth. right? Not about physical birth anymore. The new birth, spiritual birth. Chapter 4, we're going to read about Jesus bringing in a time of new worship. Not according to the old rituals we've inherited from the fathers, but new worship that is according to the Spirit and according to the truth. In John chapter 6, Jesus brings in the new manna in place of the manna that Moses had given. In John chapter 7, Jesus is the new light and the one who produces within his people rivers of living water bubbling up to eternal life. In chapter 10, Jesus is the culmination and the fullness of what it means to have God as your shepherd. Not according to old covenant terms, but according to the new covenant terms. And then chapter 15, I love the, uh, the picture in John chapter 15 where Jesus presents himself as the true vine of God's people in place of the old covenant vine, which was the national people of Israel. We're going to get there. Jesus is true Israel. That's what the, the whole Gospel of John is about. It's about new covenant grace 
coming in the place of the expired old covenant grace. And in these ways, Jesus is bringing us to see the grace of God in a fuller, surer, more everlasting grace that has now replaced all the old forms which had reached their fulfillment. All right. There's one more thing I want to point out here. And we're coming to the table. One more thing symbolized in this miracle. What Jesus does here in the wedding at Cana merely foreshadows what he is going to do at a much greater wedding feast that is yet to come. The day is coming when Jesus will come again. And I pray that it's soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. I'm not content with life in this world. The more I experience life in this world, the more I hate it. The more I'm longing for life in the world that is to come. Hebrews 2.5 The day is coming when Jesus will come again and he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth according to Revelation 21. And at that time, he will invite all of his people to sit and to dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now just listen to the way that Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 8 prophesy about what will come to pass at that great wedding feast. Isaiah 25 6 starts by saying, And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined, refined aged wine. And on that day, when on this mountain he will, he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, when he removes the veil stretched over all the peoples and swallows up death for all time, wiping every tear away from all faces. A lot of that language is Revelation 21. And it will be fulfilled when Jesus brings about the new heaven and the new earth. That day is coming when the wine pictured here in Cana of Galilee will give way to the fullness it was designed to foreshadow. And we will sit and we will drink with our Lord the refined aged wine that he has been preparing for us for almost 2,000 years now. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me end on this point. The invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb is given. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, Jesus Himself is the invitation for sinners like you and me to come to God, to have fellowship with God in Jesus' name. It's through his death on the cross. It's through his resurrection on our behalf. Prior to that, it's through his righteous life that he lived for sinners like us. It's through his ascension into glory. Like that is, that is how you and I are able and enabled to approach God in this new covenant of grace. The invitation is there. The command comes forth simply for us to receive that invitation and act upon it. 
you and I are summoned to come to this marriage feast of the Lamb. You're called to lay aside your sin and to run after Jesus. What sin are you still holding on to that's keeping you from following after Him? Where are you not living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is your life, Christians? Where is your life inconsistent with the invitation of the gospel? Are you coming? Are you anticipating the moment when you will finally come to that wedding feast and be with Jesus Christ forever? Or are you living as though the real feast is what's here and now and what's around you? Are you living the life of self-denial that Jesus calls you to, to take up your cross every single day and follow Him to die? Are you taking up that calling in hopes of what is to come? The world that is coming, the feast that's coming, the fellowship with God that's coming, the new creation when we will be with God forever and we will see Him face to face and we will forever dwell with our God. Is that what you're living for? Is that the feast that you are reaching after in your day-to-day lives? Or are you too busy feeding on the feast that the world is offering to you? Not everyone at this feast, in this wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee, recognized what Jesus had done. There were only a few of them that actually saw the sign and believed. I wonder, are you among those that see the glory of what Jesus did here? And are you among those that believe? The command is to come to him and to believe. The invitation to the wedding feast is open for any and all who will come to Jesus in order to have it. So come. Come to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would give us grace to come to the feast of the Lamb. Lord, and to revel in the glory of your grace, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would use anything that was spoken truthfully and rightly here, that you would use that to encourage the hearts of your people. Lord Jesus, help us revel in in the fact that you have come to bring new covenant grace to those who don't deserve it. New covenant grace in place of the old covenant. Help us receive that by faith this morning and prepare us as we come to your table in a moment. In Jesus' name, amen.